Hello, you're listening to Health Affairs This Week, the podcast where health affairs editors get together at the virtual water cooler to talk about the latest news in health policy. I'm Rob Lott. This is week four of a five-part mini-series on the podcast where we're taking a break from the headlines and digging a little deeper on the topic of housing and health, with the aim of elevating some of the content from our archives, uh, especially uh, a handful of health policy briefs on the topic. Our goal is also to set the stage for our upcoming theme issue on housing and health scheduled to go live in early February and featuring more than a dozen cutting-edge research papers really moving the field forward. Uh, And so today we're doing our part by talking to those experts who have helped us develop these briefs over the years. And our guest today is Dr. Michael Lenz, Associate Professor of Urban Planning and Public Policy and Associate Faculty Director of the Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies at UCLA. Dr. Lenz's research involves housing interventions such as subsidies, tenant protections, and production, as well as uh, 50 years of neighborhood change in Black neighborhoods following the 1968 Fair Housing Act. Uh, Importantly, he is also the author of our health policy brief on zoning policy and co-author of another brief on neighborhood segregation and health. We had a wonderful talk, and uh, without further ado, here it is. Professor Michael Lenz, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Rob. Great to be back here. Um, in some of the previous episodes of this mini-series, we talk a little bit about the various mechanisms by which housing affects people's health, affordability, safety, neighborhood characteristics. Can you say a little bit about the role of low-density zoning and how that factors into some of these mechanisms? What kind of pressure, uh, for example, does low-density housing impose on these various pathways? So low-density zoning plays a really interesting role for me, um, particularly when we think about health. You know, first, it's, I think, important to, to set out at the outset that a lot of why we zone our cities has to do with health concerns. So the first justifications for zoning really had um, public health as the basis, thinking about separating um, noise and pollution from where people live. And so this got extended into separating different types of, of housing. And that's where, you know, speeding ahead, you know, quite quite a bit, like we have this strong preference for low density zoning, particularly single family homes. And that exacerbates a lot of these issues of the concentration of uh, safety or stability and various neighborhood characteristics that you've been talking about, neighborhood opportunity, concentrates um, these attributes of neighborhoods in our single-family zones and excludes uh, higher numbers of people from really being able to consume those neighborhood attributes. So, um, you know, low density zoning makes it just a fact of life that you can house fewer people in places that tend to have higher neighborhood opportunities and better characteristics for, for growing up and things like that. And then it also makes 
housing overall less affordable because we have fewer homes for the same number of people generally in a, in a metropolitan area. So low density zoning or single family zoning has had, you know, has this kind of dual role of excluding people from the places that you, you know, really think that the neighborhood characteristics are best for, you know, raising a family and because the schools are better and this, you know, crime rates are lower and things like that. It also exacerbates housing affordability problems because we have fewer homes for um, the same kind of demand for housing. Okay. So uh, next step then, you know, presumably if low density housing has uh, some of these potentially negative effects on, um, uh, on conditions, one might presume then that policy interventions aimed at increasing density might have a beneficial effect in the long run. What does the literature say about that? What does the evidence tell us? First step really is to figure out how best to change zoning um, to allow more housing in more places. And so the policy interventions we have at our disposal there would be, you know, to, you know, rezone our cities uh, to allow for um, two, three, four units where one unit is allowed um, in California, um, in addition to recently kind of making it much, much harder to have single-family only zones in cities. We also have something called accessory dwelling units, ADUs, that can be built pretty much as of right on any uh, single-family zoned parcel. Um, so I, I think what I'm getting to here is that some of the most palatable policy interventions for most localities is to you know go a little bit slowly and to and to remove uh, single-family only designations, not by allowing anything to be built somewhere and allow you know. 10, 12 story buildings to be built in, in the place of a single family home, but to allow what we call gentle density or, you know, missing middle housing that usually looks like more like two or three, four units. Those are probably the, again, the most politically palatable interventions. But then the question I think you're certainly getting at is, you know, have we been successful at you know, increasing density in places. And then what does that density seem to be um, affecting our, our, you know, longstanding problems of affordability and access to high opportunity neighborhoods? I would say this is where the research still needs to um, tell us more. And part of the problem is that we haven't had a ton of success in upzoning um, single-family neighborhoods or low-density neighborhoods. We're only uh, a, a few years removed from some of the major pieces of legislation in California that have changed the zoning landscape. Um, cities like Minneapolis uh, have you know, famously gotten rid of single-family zoning, but that's under legal challenge as we speak. Um, Oregon is a couple years into their single family zoning, uh, prohibition experiment. So a lot of this is really unfolding right now on the policy level and the research can't, 
you know, be ahead of the policy. We, you know, we generally know what um, increased supply of housing does on like a regional level and it makes housing less. Uh, less expensive and it gives people more opportunities in more places. Um, but we know certainly less at the neighborhood level. Um, most of the uh, research coming out that really looks at neighborhood level effects of density on uh, housing cost finds, you know, what we want to see, which is that it's less likely to make housing more expensive. It's more likely to make housing uh, more affordable. Um, but you know, these are still the processes of upzoning to density to cost and affordability um, are these are still connections that you know the policy is not yet able allowing us to make in in the research community. This issue of zoning was something you covered in your uh, 2021 policy brief. Uh, more recently, you co-authored a brief on public policies to address residential segregation and improve health. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about the nexus there. Yeah, that's a, an, an important question to, to me. Um, and, you know, I, I began by talking about the public health justifications in, in the early beginnings of, of zoning and land use policy in our country and, um, and in other countries as well. But specifically in, in America's cities, there was another uh, major concern of policymakers and voters and residents, which was the increasing racial diversity of our cities, mostly coming from um, northern migrations of Black Americans from the rural South. One of the policy reactions to this diversity was to harden the boundaries between um, single-family zones and and multifamily zones. And you know, this is where the early justifications for zoning in a lot of cities were explicitly uh, racist and were explicitly, um, you know, with attention to hardening those boundaries between the white areas of town and the black areas of town, um, you know, explicitly zoning these cities by race was, was, was deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme court. And so one of the mechanisms was this kind of facially race neutral policy of low density zoning, um, that cities could use to keep particular neighborhoods, um, the way they were and the particular neighborhoods they wanted to protect and keep the way they were, were the white single family neighborhoods. And zoning was one of a few um, important mechanisms to maintain um, the racial identity of, of neighborhoods um, that were, you know, by and large single family zoned and, and overwhelmingly white, you know, scholars have, studied the extent to which that history hardened um, and in exacerbated and maintained racial segregation over many decades. And the connections do seem to be empirically very, very real. Um, the places that engaged more in uh, low density zoning are the places that are more racially segregated. Um, but we can also look at that contemporarily. So some research that I've done with uh, Pavel Makinen, some 
uh, research that uh, sociologists and economists have done uh, over the last few decades really very clearly connects contemporary um, zoning policies to both racial segregation and segregation by income. So you have the history of zoning um, and the present manifestations of zoning that do really seem to um, exacerbate and affect uh, the extent to which people are segregated by race. These seem like uh, really deeply entrenched conditions. And I'm wondering if that um, does it, does it make our, you know, our work of striving for change feel hopeless or at the very least overwhelming? Uh, obviously I'm not saying that change isn't worth fighting for, but, uh, but I'm curious what the most promising and realistic next steps are in practice. Um, are there policy interventions that we know of that have been studied? I know you alluded to some of the sort of gentle density or incremental work. Um, is that where we go from here? I think where people have continually been the least hopeful in this space is thinking about the politics, you know, the, the politics of changing cities to make them more equitable, um, to really address the affordability and segregation concerns of, of low income people and, and racial minorities in, in our country has met a lot of resistance. There's a reason why we have, you know, the policies that we have. Um, and, and, you know, people don't like change. They don't like development. They, you know, there's a lot of things that, that, that get in the way here. But I, I think the last decade, um, you know, that I've been studying this in particular does feel like there is really rapid movement on 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 a lot of or not just not just rapid movement policy wise but in the conversation about housing and development like even if you get some literature from your local homeowners association or your local neighborhood association like they are acknowledging that there is a housing crisis that, you know, in Los Angeles in particular, like there is a homelessness crisis and we need to do something somewhere. You know, I think 10, 20 years ago, a, a local association is simply talking about how do we just slow down the pace of development around us and is not even trying to think of what the uh, potential uh negative byproducts of that are going to be. And then, you know, there's a very rapidly growing and pretty strong movement of people who are renters that represent a broader swath of uh, cost-constrained renters um, that we've had than, than we've ever had before. So we have decades of people fighting for housing justice but now we have on top of that a growing movement of you know what people call yimbies who are yes in my backyard who are actively pushing for pro housing policies and pro density policies and you know that's a new and potent movement that didn't exist much at all a couple of decades ago and this is a necessary correction, I think, against the power of, of homeowners and people who 
are anti-density, anti-development, anti-even integration, you know? Um, and so I think that we, this is a, I think a really good time for hope in terms of like, we're going to hopefully change some policy. Um, and we already have had plenty of wins in some states and cities. You know, the problem is that the, we have let this go on for so long um, that the kind of lack of housing production and the increased housing costs for people, you know, from poor to middle class, that we have a long way to go in terms of, you know, building enough housing and, and having enough opportunities for people to, to really make it livable in, in most high cost cities. Wonderful. Uh, Professor Michael Lenz, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Of course, Rob, my pleasure. Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with UCLA's Dr. Michael Lenz. Please don't forget to subscribe to Health Affairs This Week, recommend it to a friend, and leave a review. One more thing, please go ahead, sign up for our newsletters. They're free. They're full of great health policy content that you won't find anywhere else. And it's really the best way to make sure you're among the first to know about upcoming theme issues like February's special focus on housing and health. Until then, take care, friends. We'll see you next week.